Hey there. So, couple things. First, I apologize for this being slightly late. We have been completing a move, and so currently I'm sitting in a half-finished new studio, which is why it might sound a little different. But, um, yeah, so that delayed getting this out uh, more than we intended. Second is, you might be wondering, where is the second part of the swearing series? Well, we will be getting that in the next episode, but we wanted to focus a little bit on the issues that have been, well, plaguing, I guess, the United States for the past couple weeks. Discussions of uh, police violence and police reform. Now, we actually thought about airing this episode first before the swearing series a couple weeks ago, but we decided not to because, well, one, we thought people wanted something a little more lighthearted, considering the times, and also there's a lot of voices that have already been talking about police reform and police protests, and we didn't want to add ours to it when there are so many good ones already that need to be listened to. Now, with that being said, it seems like this movement is different this time, which, considering cynical me, <laughs> was was a bit of a shock. Uh, I've been working on police reform ever since I've been in my adult age, and this is the first time that I think that we could see real change occur. And so with that being said, we're going to dive a little bit into the history of a police organization, the United States Park Police. Now, why are we choosing the Park Police? Well, first, this would be a good case study to examine all police organizations across the United States. Even though the majority of these precincts are state and local, using the United States Park Police is a good highlight considering, well, what happened on June 1st. If you don't know what I'm talking about, June 1st was when uh, Washington, D.C.'s protesters in Lafayette Square were tear-gassed and shot with rubber bullets in order for the president to march across the street and have a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. So, the people who actually perpetrated that was the United States Park Police. And if you're wondering to yourself, I've never even heard of them, that's partly why we wanted to do this history. To A highlight one of the premier police forces, and B, to show that there is a history of disorganization and a department in disorder. And so, with that being said, enjoy the show. There's this panel in the graphic novel Watchmen, widely considered one of the greatest graphic novels ever to be written, and the panel has a protester spraying on a wall, who watches the Watchmen? The Watchmen are a group of superheroes that are semi-vigilantes, but have been given pretty much complete and total control over bringing order to chaos in America. But if that sounds like something out of DC Comics, which, I mean, technically it is, it was published by DC, but it's certainly not as rosy as the Silver Age comics used to be. The Watchmen are a group of superheroes that very much don't act super. They really don't act like heroes. In fact, in this series of panels, what people remember is that phrase, who watches the Watchmen? Maybe what they don't remember is that one of the main characters, the comedian, is seen shooting that protester with, well, 
what seems to be some sort of like tear gas or rubber bullets or something as he is spray painting on the wall. And in the discussion that happens in this series of panels comes this idea that the people do not trust the Watchmen to actually police themselves. And in this series of panels, Comedian uh, is talking with another one, Night Owl, and between them, they're having a very succinct argument of what's happening right now in America. In it, the Night Owl is talking about how the whole situation has gotten out of control, while the Comedian just thinks it's hilarious. The Night Owl, at one point, at the very kind of climax of this conversation, says, The country's disintegrating. What happened to America? What happened to the American dream? And the comedian responds, it came true. You're looking at it. And then he walks off into a series of flames and smoke, like all good superheroes do. But it's, it's this surreal moment in the comics that just exemplifies what happens when the police don't police themselves. It's the same thing that I was thinking about when I saw on June 1st, um, I didn't actually see it, I, I read it, and I, to be honest, I had just taken some Ambien, so sleeping pills were kicking in, and I pull up CNN, and that's the first um, image I see is of these protesters being cleared out from Lafayette Square, and as I read the article, all I could think of is, there's no way this is real, right? I thought it was the Ambien talking. But it just reminded me so much of that quote. What happens when the Watchmen won't watch themselves? In 2013, the Office of Inspector General under the United States Department of the Interior published a report titled Review of U.S. Park Police Weapons Accountability Program. The purpose of the report was to examine allegations that the park police officers had misappropriated their firearm inventory. However, the report encountered a more surprising problem. Their efforts, quote, were hindered by a failure of the USPP property and firearms custodians to provide a baseline and accounting of firearms, end quote. In the report, the investigators concluded, quote, During our review of USPP field office armories, we discovered more than 1,400 extra weapons. These included 477 military-style automatic and semi-automatic rifles, two dozen of these almost century-old submachine guns and rifles, literally Tommy guns, from the gangster era. The USPP has a force of approximately 640 sworn officers, end quote. What that means is that there's at least two guns for every single officer provided by the police department. Investigators uncovered credible evidence that firearms had also been stolen or misused. Now, this could be regarded as a fluke oversight, yet two assessments in 2008 and 2009 concluded similar managerial problems regarding firearms accountability. The report concluded, quote, We have little confidence that USPP has the managerial commitment to carry out this effort without direct and frequent oversight from the National Park Service and OIG, end quote. This unfavorable report of the management of the Park Police has not been the only negative press surrounding the force in recent years. In April 2018, political newspaper The Hill reported that the Park Police were forbidden to wear audio or video recorders while on duty unless authorized for a special investigation, prompting public outcry of possible misconduct. 
another high-profile case, is still ongoing after two officers fatally shot Bijan C. Gaysar, I hope I pronounced that right, on November 17th, 2017, after a vehicular chase. Bijan was unarmed, and the Park Police continued to stonewall FBI agents who were investigating their overreach of Park Police policy. But these are just a string in a long line of grievances stretching back through the United States Park Police's history that characterize it is as disorganized and mismanaged as they come. Like many other branches of the National Park Service law enforcement, from their very inception in the 1880s, they have been mocked in the public eye as a department of disorder, plagued with inefficiency and insubordinate behavior. But where did this perception originate, and is it an accurate assessment in the present day? As will be made clear, the poor reputation of the park police stems from the early conduct of park watchmen in their history, and comparisons with the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., negative press from local newspapers, and a lack of managerial oversight. This perception continues to dog their efforts to curb crime within present-day national parks, and it is not altogether false. As we learned on June 1st, the question of who watches the watchmen has never been answered in the park police's history. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. States Park Police is the title given to one of the law enforcement agencies underneath the National Park Service. Park Police share law enforcement responsibilities with the National Park Service Rangers. You've probably seen them, the Smokey the Bear outfit. But unlike Rangers, the Park Police are given the full power to investigate and detain persons suspected of committing offenses against the United States in these National Park sites. Their main duties include operating National Monument sites in metropolitan areas. Their main zone of influence began in Washington, D.C. and extended to the Gateway National Recreation Area in New York City and the Golden Gate in San Francisco after 1972. So you probably know them if you've ever been to uh, the National Mall in Washington, D.C. because they're the ones who are always on guard duty there. Policemen do have the authority to assume law enforcement functions in other national parks for services such as criminal investigations and aviation rescues, and they continue to work throughout all national parks. They remain the largest concentration of law enforcement professionals in the park service and, interestingly, the oldest police force in the United States. Therefore, it is astonishing that no complete history of the United States Park Police has ever been made. The closest has been in 1989, the official history of the Park Police written by Barry McIntosh, but it's only a booklet of like 60 pages long. While the Park Police does maintain its own small archives, it's closed to the public, and their reports and memos are fragmented across the National Park Service. Thus, it is hard to fully grasp the completeness of the history of its mismanagement, but it is clear from the sources we do have that it has many of the same problems as the rest of police forces and the National Park Service across the United States. And these problems start with funding and personnel. 
the United States Park Police was bestowed its title in 1919 by an act of Congress, but its roots stretch back all the way to 1791, when the plans for Washington, D.C. were first completed. The first park watchmen were hired to guard the Capitol and White House at some point between completion of construction and the actual movement of the government from Philadelphia to Washington in 1800. In 1802, Congress incorporated the city government, which then created the position of police superintendent. In 1834, the city police were given the ability to apprehend and punish violators on federal grounds, but appropriations acts through the mid-19th century funded a couple of watchmen separate from the police to patrol the Capitol and White House. In 1849, they were then assigned to the Department of the Interior, which administered the federal lands in Washington, D.C., by 1867, the Watchmen had fallen under the purview of the Chief Engineer of the Army. Their numbers were between two to a dozen, depending on what constituted a Watchman. This is because in the 19th century, Watchmen were as much laborers as they were patrolmen, assigned, quote, not only to preserve property from injury, but to make minor repairs of the walks and the sodding, the keep uh, the paths and lawns free of papers and shaving and other rubbish, end quote. So in other words, they were um, glorified trashmen. In 1879, the chief appealed for the first of many police requests for funding, stating, quote, the necessity for additional watchmen upon the park's reservations is rendered more apparent from year to year as these spots become greater resorts for the people, end quote. An Appropriations Act was approved, and by 1880, their force grew to all of 12 men, complete with badge, baton, and whistle. But throughout this early period at the turn of the century, the force remained undermanned and undisciplined. At times, the park police had only one patrolman for a single park for one eight-hour shift. The other 16 hours, the park was left to the freedom of loafers and undesirables. As well, many early watchmen were often older veterans of the Mexican and Civil Wars, and their duties involved labor work on federal grounds. That meant that it was boring work, and watchmen prompted complaints from citizens for everything, from drunkenness and leaving one's post to the removal of flowers from shrubbery and repairing watches on the job. Their arrest record was in minor offenses such as drunkenness, fast driving, and fornication. Quickly, they took on a negative public perception as substandard law enforcement. However, by the 1910s, the park police began to be reorganized. The practice of funding through appropriation acts of Congress was ended, and an age limit of 58 was put on hiring, but their status continued to be ridiculed. When a bill was introduced in the 1914 Congress calling to replace the Metropolitan Policemen protecting the White House with park policemen, the secretary to President Woodrow Wilson, Joseph P. Tumulty, complained, quote, The park policemen are too old for duty at the White House, where none but alert, robust, and active men should serve in such a capacity, end quote. He went on to commend the Metropolitan Department as up to the task. In fact, it is clear from this early stage that not only did the park police fight an early negative image as a substandard police force, but they truly were substandard, in both quantity and quality of personnel and equipment. Much of this was due to the competition for resources with the Metropolitan Police Department in D.C., which had been created in 1861. 
Quickly, they outstripped the Park Police in resources and manpower. In 1902, Park Policemen were significantly underpaid at $60 a month, compared to the $90 a Metropolitan Policeman could make. The annual report of the Chief of Engineers recommended higher status on equal with the Metropolitan because, quote, he has practically the same duties as the Metropolitan Police. He has to make as many arrests as the average policeman. He runs the same risks as to injury from vicious people as the many doing duty on the street, end quote. As well, while fines from cases held by both the Metropolitan Police and Park Police were paid into a retirement and disability fund, only Metropolitan Policemen were able to reap its benefits. Much of this was because the Park Police were still considered second-rate watchmen, subsistent to the Metropolitan. Finally, the Metropolitan Police were authorized to enforce laws in the national sites should the need arise, posing the question of whether the Park Police was needed at all. If the two overlapped in duties and one was clearly superior to the other, should they not merge? I find this really fascinating, because in this very short 10 minutes that we've been discussing the Park Police's 100-year history from the 1700s through the 1800s, it's interesting to note that the same problems that plague police organizations today were the same problems that they were still dealing with 100 years back then. Namely, bad police hiring practices of people who were either underqualified to be a police officer or were veterans of wars and which they, I suppose, would be a little overqualified for the police force, a lack of clear and consistent funding and recognition of services from the Department of the Interior and Congress, and a rivalry with other police forces, namely in this case the Metropolitan Police Force of the District of Columbia. And then we can add to that animosity that continued to build up in the public towards the police force. City newspapers, such as the Washington Post and the Evening Star, reported almost daily about the actions of the park police, and negative reception sold well. This hostility towards the park police reached a boiling point in 1932, when it was first reported that the park police was to be merged with the Metropolitan Police. However, those plans were put on hold when President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an executive order on June 10, 1933, handing control of the National Capitol's parks to the National Park Service. Overnight, the park police found itself under new management, but there were no immediate effects. No major staff changes were made, with the exception of new Park Service personnel joining the administration of the new National Capital Parks. When it became clear to detractors that the Park Police would have no major structural changes, the number of challenges increased. Metropolitan Police Captain and future Superintendent of the National Capital Parks, Edward J. Kelly, testified in a special House committee in 1935 that he should absorb the Park Police. Attacks in 1937 and 1944 on civilians in the park by criminals prompted public outcry over the inadequacy of the park police to perform their duty, and in 1944 they faced their toughest challenge in a congressional bill put forth to liquidate the park police and reallocate its resources and workforce to the Metropolitan Police. NPS Associate Director Arthur E. Demeray testified against the bill arguing that the park police had a lower crime rate in the parks compared to the rest of Washington, and that the merge would not save money or lower crime in the National Capital Parks. That bill failed, 
but a similar bill reducing the park police to simple assisters to the Metropolitan Police, with no authority in felony matters, passed Congress and made it all the way to the desk of President Harry S. Truman before it was vetoed. Consolidation bills continued to put, be put forth through the 1940s as Washington newspapers reported on any rape or murder that occurred within the park police's jurisdiction. Now here's what I find kind of interesting about all this too. This idea of a war against negative public perception that stems throughout the entire history of the United States Park Police. I'm actually going to stop and get a little bit in the weeds here, but I think it's actually appropriate for everybody to learn a little bit of what uh, historians do. One thing we study is called historiography, not history, historiography. It's the study of studying history. In other words, the study of the interpretation of history. And one thing that we always want to keep an eye out for is uh, the, the very obvious biases that can exist when a historian writes up history. And in this one, especially looking at Barry McIntosh's uh, uh, history of the park police, it's very clear that the historians of the park police want to paint themselves as constantly always on the defense against this public perception of defunding them. So far, everything I've said might be a, a little snooze-inducing for you uh, listening to, oh, did it get appropriated or did it not? But it's this cogent argument that the historians of the Park Police are trying to make, which is that we are constantly on defensive against public intrusions into our space, and we would rather that they just leave us well alone. But what if they're not doing their job adequately? Should the public then not police the police force? Well, that becomes the continual question throughout the park police's history. By the 1950s, the park police had grown large enough that any merger would be impossible. But had they professionalized? Well, it seems not. At least not to the bar set by the Department of the Interior. In 1957, a survey by Donald S. Leonard, a consultant on police administration, quote, found a variety of problems weakening the 190-man force including frequent bypassing and undercutting of authority, poor discipline, low morale, and unsatisfactory promotion policies, end quote. In 1961, another report by consultant Peter J. Legens stated the same, adding that he heard, quote, many stories circulating within the organization about corruption, sexual misconduct, and drunkenness on duty, and a battle between a former chief and a former NCP superintendent, end quote. With the incoming Kennedy administration, Assistant Secretary of the Interior Carver ordered the Assistant Superintendent, Nash Castro, to act on it. Castro had never had police experience before, but he went into his role with aplomb. He instituted new training courses and discontinued the use of liquor and food from market stalls in the parks as prizes in police pistol matches. Congress became involved, too. New legislation was passed on the park police that authorized trial boards that would preside over matters involving officers who violated internal regulations. Attached to it was a warning from Representative and Chairman of the House Interior Committee's Subcommittee on Parks, J.T. Rutherford of Texas. He warned, quote, If this bill and other changes which the Department of the Interior have been making do not substantially lessen internal conflict in the park police and improve its standing in the eyes of citizenry, I shall move quickly to introduce a bill to abolish the park police and transfer its functions to the Metropolitan Police 
in other organizations. End quote. The Park Police continued to face issues throughout the 1960s and 70s, especially with the clash of protesters. Many marches were performed in the National Mall, and on more than one occasion, officers were forced into assignments that brought them into physical contact with crowds that devolved into mobs. The Poor People's March in 1968 and the Fourth of July Honor America Day program in 1970 both devolved into violent encounters with participants. But the crisis extended to other national parks, notably Yosemite, Stone Man, Meadow Riots in 1970. The need for a national park police beyond the just the capital led to the assignment of park police in each regional NPS office, the National Park Service, an officer to 20 major national parks for management of local law enforcement, and a force of over 100 park police that could be mobilized to any national park in 12 hours. Over the past 50 years, it has evolved to include an aviation unit, criminal investigations branch, narcotics, marine and horse-mounted units, canine units, and a special weapons and tactic officers. They also expanded to include women, with the first Park Service woman to undertake the Park Police Academy undergoing training in 1971. In their annual report, the Park Police cited 620 officers and 124 other staff under their division. At the end of the official history of the Park Police, the author, McIntosh, stated in his closing remarks that the force, quote, continued to command near-universal respect as a credit to the police profession and the National Park Service, end quote. Yet longevity does not guarantee a good reputation. If anything, the problems of the past continue to plague the park police through the 1980s and into the present. In 1983, five years before McIntosh was finishing his report, the Washington Post printed a column that accused the Park Service of downgrading actual crimes to less serious offenses to look better on annual reports, citing testimonials by park police officers that stated, quote, If you do not have a reporting system, you don't have a crime problem. End quote. Scholars concurred with the column. In 1981, a study was published on the National Park Service that found that managers reacted more to the overall level of vandalism rather than the actual crime rate. More damning was a 2002 report by the Office of Inspector General, which assessed the law enforcement of the Department of the Interior, including the Park Police. Its title? The Disquieting State of Disorder. It scathingly critiques the Park Police as, quote, void in leadership, coordination, and accountability for the law enforcement programs, end quote. It is, like the 2013 report, cited having made similar claims in previous years, suggesting that the Park Police had not made any changes from their previous assessments. Furthermore, it also unveiled a feud often unmentioned within the National Park Service between rangers and Park Police, who characterized the report as a hatchet job to discredit the Park Police in favor of the rangers. The report ends by calling for new leadership that is, quote, willing to embrace change and confront organizational resistance, end quote. With the overwhelming evidence both within the department and from without in recent years, it is almost impossible to deny that the Park Police continues to suffer from mismanagement and disciplinary problems. It may have grown out of its early status as watchmen and its competition with the Metropolitan Police in the early 20th century, but it's replaced that with a rivalry between them and the Park Service Rangers. 
Furthermore, even with its growth in quality and quantity, the department continues to suffer from a lack of organizational leadership, of officer discipline, and management across all fronts. The United States Park Police may have deserved only some of its poor reputation it fostered in the past, but it fully deserves its reputation that it has fostered in the present. It's why, at least to my ears, having studied the history of the United States Park Police, their calls to not defund the police, well, they ring hollow to me. As we've seen, there's been discussion of defunding or highly systemic police reform uh, at a structural level with just the Park Police throughout their history. And yet, they continue to defend themselves as inadequately supplied or not having the right regimens. They continuously act as if some sort of new training program will fix everything, or if they just get a few more million dollars so that they can afford some more weapons. This is the sort of stuff that we see all the time from police unions and police organizations whenever people talk about reforming the police. Even when there is overwhelming evidence in their history, time and time again, of mismanagement and a lack of oversight, Law enforcement just wants civilians to stop telling them what to do, step aside, and let them do their damn job. But here's the thing. This was a bit of a dry episode for us to do, but the reason I wanted to do it is to show that there is some damn good data on how bad at least the park police has been, and it's the same sort of data that I've seen time and time again whenever I've studied police forces. And of course, I always see the exact same arguments made by the police, which is, well, if we only had more training, if we only had more officers, if we only had more funding, if we only had more resources, we'd be able to get the job done. No. No, you wouldn't. Because this is the same argument we've been having since the very first police force in 1791. Police reform requires something a little more systemic, and it starts with this question— who watches the Watchmen? Part of what makes me so angry about this constant, just people being shot in the streets by police officers who are unarmed, who are innocent, who don't deserve to die, is that they just say, we're going to do better next time, and they have not done better. How can we believe them when 200 years of history continues to prove to us that the police need a reform that is not going to come from the police? It's not going to come from the watchmen. It's got to come from the civilians. And if it's not going to come from civilian leadership, then damn it, it's going to come from the people on the ground. A lot of you know that I'm a, a conscientious objector, a CO. Um, I've mentioned it here on the pod before. Uh, but I'll mention it again. Um, it's kind of funny, though, because I come from a military family. My brother-in-law's in the Marines. My father was in the Navy and, and then the Army. It's been in for, God, almost 40 years, maybe? He was one of the National Guardsmen who was called out during these protests. And you have to understand, my father is an upstanding guy. He, he is, <laughs> unlike me, who uh, is a bit of a bowl in a china room, he is the kind of person that everybody loves, nobody can hate. He's just a light and life in everything he does. And he's somebody I wish I could be. And knowing that he was going to go out into these protests, armed, and possibly have to shoot protesters, really troubled me. But something that gave me hope was, as he was texting us, um, 
and it, just a simple line that said that I pray it doesn't come to that. Because I have the confidence that if it did come to that, my dad would not be one of the people who would pull the trigger. I know him well enough. That's the sort of leadership we need to see from the police. When I say the people on the ground, I don't just mean the protesters. I mean police officers, law enforcement, National Guardsmen, armed forces personnel. We have a systemic problem of police violence. We have a systemic problem of violence, violence, but, well, one step at a time. And the only way this is going to change is through oversight. We need to decide who watches the watchmen. And I think it's pretty clear at this point that police organizations are not going to be the watchmen anymore. And as long as Congress is deadlocked, the only people who can be the watchmen is us, the everyday citizen, whether you're law enforcement or not. <laughs> Unfortunately, right now, this is the world we live in, where we, the people who are to be protected, are the ones who have to make sure that we're protected against those who are assigned to protect us. It's kind of the funny, surreal world we live in. But for once, I have hope as I see so many people embrace the idea of systemic change. And I hope someday soon that we don't have to be afraid of the Watchmen anymore. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com.